Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be advised, this story contains adult content and graphic language. So I've decided to call Deep Throat on air right now for my final attempt to see if she will in fact come forward on her own and share all she knows about her conversation with Rachel Buffett and Rachel Buffett's role in these murders. Welcome to Sleuth. I'm Linda Sawyer. This is our finale episode, and over the last month, I've mentioned to you that there has been a person that's come forward that I like to refer to as Deep Throat, and Deep Throat came forward after episode nine and shared with me conversations that she had with Rachel Buffett, very telling conversations of Rachel's involvement, her knowledge, and what her participation was in these murders. And I have been working with Deep Throat now for over a month, trying to convince her to come forward. And she has yet to commit to that. I've met with her several times. And... At this point, she knows that today's the deadline because we are, in fact, recording our finale episode. So I've given her a window of three hours that she has the opportunity to call in and share with our listeners firsthand all of the information that she knows that could, in fact, indict and have Rachel charged as an accomplice. Deep Throat is a religious person. And up till now, I had the faith that she would find the courage to come forward and tell her story. She did reach out to me, and so I want to believe that 
by the end of the recording of this finale episode, we will hear from her. Otherwise, I will share what she's told me without revealing her name because I made a promise that she would remain anonymous unless she decided to come forward. So with that, I want to now share with our listeners that throughout the podcast, it's clear that there have been many questions that have come up over the time, over the twists and turns that you all have been willing to share on this journey. And so one particular person who stood out to me as I want to call my number one listening fan, Jeff Maddox, who reaches out to me on almost a daily basis with questions, really good questions, that it it made me think, why don't you come on the last episode and represent all of the listeners' questions? And if we could collect all of their questions and including Jeff's, and have him come on and turn the tables on me and ask me those questions, perhaps that would put to bed any lingering thoughts, observations, concerns that you have about my work on Sleuth. So with that, I would like to introduce to our listeners, Jeff Maddox. Thank you for coming here today. Uh, thank you so much, Linda. I, I'm. It's kind of cool to finally be here. You know, I'm flattered that you invited me in. And yeah, I have been asking questions because like everyone, as I listen, things come up. I go, wait, what, what was that about? Wait, what, what was going on during that? And I think some of my questions are not... Hold uh, on one second. We have Daniel Hulkyard calling in. And Daniel Hulkyard yes. is actually Daniel Wozniak's pastor. Daniel Hulkyard, hi, you're you're on the air live. Thank you for calling. Um, absolutely. So uh, how how did it go with your conversations with Danny Wozniak? Oh, they went fine. I've uh, we basically uh, touched base on a uh, on a few issues and uh, asking how family members were and everything, and uh, we discussed a few things in general. It went it went well. And did you share with him the fact that you participated in Sleuth? Yes, I did, and he he, he had told me that he had heard all of the episodes, and uh, you know, as with anyone who depending upon which ear you're listening with or what eye you're looking at it through. He had his differences of opinion, but he did uh, hear my my version, and uh, he said, no, you're entitled to that. And I said, I know I'm entitled to it. And uh, I think he was referring to my opinion about uh, Rachel Buffett's participation, uh, what my thoughts were. And uh, I, I told him, I just told him, Dan, I just told him what I felt. And uh, I told him I thought that... Uh, they were erring on the side of, uh, of of justice, as I would say. They were trying to get perspectives from both sides, and uh, you know. And then, and I encouraged them. I said, if you have a difference of opinion with Sleuth, you need to call them to to make your case. And I said, other than that, we have the blogger's point of view, and we have Sleuth's point of view. And I told them at that time, I'm more inclined to listen to Sleuth's part because. It seems to have more of the players who are more objective, who are there, and have nothing to gain from their point of view, one way or the other. And he disagreed. He, you know, he has absolute faith in his blogger. Are you when you say the blogger, are you talking about uh, the blogger that has the uh, website? Daniel Wozniak is my friend. Yes, yes. And uh, I, my bottom line in all of this, after my conversations with Daniel, is that I. I don't know. I've um, 
I'm just not sure anymore. I've the Daniel I knew and the Daniel I'm talking to, they're not the same people. And uh, I'm just I'm I've come to that conclusion and I've decided that I don't know what to believe anymore. I in talking to Daniel, I just feel like there's just I it's hard to get a handle on. And uh things that I know that actually happened that I've heard, he he says he won't go into it because he says there are certain records that, you know, that have everything that absolutely happened uh, that can't be discussed because of some kind of thing about, uh, oh, I guess a while back he, uh, there was that thing in the, in the Orange County uh, jail system where there was snitching going on, all kinds of stuff. And he says because of that, there's certain people they need to, to have uh, interviewed and they can't. And this went on and I said, finally, I said, Dan, stop. I said, you know what? This is way over my head. I said, I've all I've asked is that I'd like to help you with your ministry. I'd like to feel that you have been absolutely truthful and everything. But I said, uh, that's got to be your call. I said, I really don't want to discuss this anymore because, Linda, I don't know what the truth is anymore. I'm just not. Right. I talk to Dan. I don't know if I'm being put on now. Why was he upset with what you said about Rachel? You would think that that would have pleased him. No, I don't think it did, because I think there's so much more connected to all of this. I don't think we'll ever get the truth here, but I do believe that someone's hiding someone from someone, and I just, I don't I don't understand it anymore. He he took issue with the fact that his, that uh, that Daryl died because of the injuries. He, he took issue with that and said that was not true, and that evidently the brother, whoever it was, uh, was banished and told to leave the family. Well, I mean, I mean, the injuries were a direct result of him going into a coma. <laughs> well, that I don't know. I don't yeah. know any of that. He denies a lot of it well. and says that the brother's not allowed around there anymore. Right. And that's that's why that's that. why the brother's not allowed any, there anymore, because he he beat him to a pulp. And you know what? Bob Castillo came on the show and said, I saw him moments after he was beaten by Mike and he had bruises and black eyes and bleeding everywhere. It's sad because this is not the family I knew. And I feel for Marianne, his mom. I feel for all of them what's going on there. And this is tragic. And I I never once got remorse for the victims. It didn't even come up. It wasn't even volunteered. And usually the Dan I know would have apologized for something like that and felt bad. But that Dan's gone. The Dan that's in San Quentin, in my feeling, is the Dan that belongs in San Quentin. What he did was unforgivable, but his lack of remorse is even more unforgivable. I just, it just breaks my heart. I don't know what he's hiding. I don't know who he's hiding, but I don't think the total truth has come out. Well, he, I think that we know that the, the taking on Rachel and, and framing her for uh, her role in these murders are directly correlated to Tim's role in the murders. And I think that that's what's, that's what's uh, the big secret here. It's a shame, but I look at it this way, Linda. Unless someone goes after Dan, unless something breaks, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's so now. So now you feel like you you won't be able to get the truth out of him at this point. It sounds to me like that's what you're feeling. No, I honestly feel that way. I don't think the truth's going to come out, and I don't. And uh, I've discussed it with my family, and I just said, you know what? My family and I, we need, we need to move on. This is sad, but we appreciate your efforts. I will always support Sleuth and what you've done. I think you've done an admirable job. 
you know, what do you do when you have a pathological liar and that's the only source you can get to? I mean, boy, you're, you're taking, that's a twing cost there. Yeah, I that's... mean, when I talked to him on the phone, he was like, my God, if I had not known Dan, I thought we had gone back 10 years because he was that charming. But then something about what he was saying and how he said it and what he was evading, I just said, yikes, this is not the Dan I knew. This is a different man that's sitting in Quentin. And I, I pray God will guide him and what he's going to do, but that's his call. And as far as all the people I've been involved, I, I'm just, I'm so sad for the families and for what everybody went through, the lives that were touched, but I appreciate the effort you put forth. You, you put a gallant effort forth. And uh, in the end, the story is not finished. We don't know how it completely ended, and we won't. I just don't think we will. And who knows when Dan's going to tell the truth or not. I don't know. Are you still pl- Are you still planning on going to see him on January 1st? No, no. no. I've, I've, I've cut that off. I've, uh, it hurts too much. I can't. I'm, I'm not going to spend two hours. And, and you know, I'm not going to spend two hours and be lied to. And that's about what it's going to turn out to be. It's, it's, that's what, that's, I just don't want to do that. I know. I just, it's, it's a waste of my time. And, um, I've, I've waited heavily. I prayed about it. I thought about it. I said, no, I said, I gotta let this go. You know, I've, I hope you're able to pursue however further you're going to pursue, but that man is never going to tell you the truth because I don't think honestly, Dan Wozniak knows the truth. You know, the one thing about the truth versus a lie you don't have to remember the truth. It's always going to be there. It's those lies that you have to sort out and go, oh, is that the truth? Is that the truth? He knows the truth. He just refuses to share it for whatever reasons. You know, I don't know. But I wish I wish his family, his mom, very well. I've, I've always loved her. And uh, But Dan right now I'm very frustrated with. I mean... Well, Daniel, we we appreciate you coming on and and telling us everything and sharing with us. And I can hear in your voice how painful this all is. And I know how much it meant to you to be able to reach out to him and, and maybe get some answers so that there could be justice all around here. But thank you for all your efforts, Daniel, and we will uh, keep in touch, okay? Thank you, Linda. God bless. Bye-bye. That was a surprise. That was. That was indeed. And uh, it's unfortunate, but I think he just learned a lot more about his old dear friend, Daniel Wozniak, than he probably didn't want to accept up till now. Yeah, I guess the moral of the story is people change, and whether you believe they can change or not, it sounds like, I mean, you could hear the hurt in his voice when he's talking about how much of a different person he is compared to the the Daniel he knew. He was planning on seeing him uh, January 1st in San Quentin, but I guess the phone calls are just too much to bear. So this was just a phone call that he had with him? He's had several, almost daily. Oh, wow. In the last couple weeks. So um, the fact that he's decided against visiting him says a lot. Yeah, it does. I wonder if that's going to change... I don't know. I wonder wonder if if maybe he was a source of support for him, even though he's not apparently being honest with him if he was some sort of source of support and the lack of phone calls that because it sounds like he's done it sounds like he just just done so i wonder if the lack of this contact might make him change his tune a little bit maybe to come maybe to get him to come around so, i don't know i don't know he has the blogger yeah uh, that reaches out to him and 
and his mother. And I think they both uh, are there for him, whether it's financially or emotionally or otherwise. They, they're they the two that really are the, the steady influences in his life at this point. So, I guess we'll just have to wait and see if we see something on Dateline or CNN or the news at some point that things have changed. Or maybe but back at Sleuth. Maybe that would be even better. So let's begin now your questions sure. that you've collected from various listeners. I have. So I wanted to get started by kind of refreshing everyone's memory on what made you so passionate about the story. It really had a connection with my children and the fact that these were all musical theater people that were involved in this case. And I just, I couldn't imagine that a person from musical theater would be capable of chopping up their, you know, killing their friends in their in the attic of a theater where they're performing in and chopping them up. It just, it was like the real life Phantom of the Opera. And it just shook me to the core because one of my daughters could have been kissing Daniel Wozniak on stage. And that really did horrify me. And for so long, for so many years, growing up as kids and even into college, my kids were passionate about musical theater. That was a safe haven for them. And so I had to find out what happened here. I mean, it almost sounds like he's two different people. The one person on stage that that's kissing girls and pretending to whatever, and then the other person who is even remotely whether it's from outside forces or not, even remotely capable of taking such an action. And that's part of, and I think I'd have to agree, that's part of one of the reasons it's been, this is, Sleuth has been so compelling for me, is to hear the story of what happened, how it happened, and are you serious? A person like that can do that? Well, so, funny, his favorite, one of his favorite uh, roles in musical theater was Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> the the irony. The irony. Um, so, Getting into the questions, one of the things uh, we had talked a lot about was some of the comments on Facebook and everywhere the podcast can be heard, iHeart, the app. One of the things that a lot of people had kind of talked about is obviously your motivation, your long-term goal for this particular podcast, this season of Sleuth, and whether it's to help the prosecution, to get uh, to, to obviously to uncover a lot of information, which I think you've been amazingly successful at doing. So certainly congratulations on doing that because you've obviously worked really hard. Do you feel like you've been successful as this is the final episode? Do you feel like this has been a success? Well, I sure hope that Deep Throat decides to call in because that I think would be the final piece of the puzzle. And I never like to walk away from a puzzle unless it's finished. While I can share with my listeners what she told me, obviously it would be incredible if 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 she could come forward and 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 tell 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 the story herself. But I have worked very hard and I appreciate you recognizing that and I do feel like even if the justice that I was hoping for for the victims' families, even if some of these others that were involved in this horrific tragedy, if they weren't brought to justice, at least from a social media aspect, and at least for all of my listeners, they know the truth. They know what happened here. Um, you might not have found it out in the courtroom, but social media could be a whole nother courtroom in and of itself. Because 
Nobody is going to Google any of these people's names without having them connected to this case. And I think the more people that listen to Sleuth, the more they're going to know how deeply they all were involved. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously listening to the show, it's not hard to see that what you're trying to do is come up with evidence that either the prosecution chose not to present or couldn't find themselves. Uh, probably, I, I'm guessing they've got a lot of money. The, the, the budget's pretty big. They got some deep pockets over there. They probably have most of the information I would imagine that you've presented. Um, do you think your motivation had anything to do with wanting to compel them to release some of that information or to use some of that information? Well, I just wanted the public to understand that you're not always going to get the truth in a courtroom. You're not going to always hear everything that happened in a case from a courtroom or even from headlines or broadcast shows like Dateline or 2020 or 48 Hours. There's only a limited amount of time they have to tell a story. And it's usually based on the goings-ons and the happenings in the courtroom. So I just thought in this particular case, because there was a narrative that it was Dan and Dan alone, that just struck me as not entirely truthful. That I felt like there was more to this story. And if I continued on the path of learning and and connecting with other people that were involved in the story that I would get the answers that would flush out the picture of what really happened to Sam and Julie and to expose who else was really involved and to what extent. And the only way to do that is, is get out there and do investigating, you know, and just stick with it. And, and even if you're an island onto yourself sometimes, because when you're telling the truth and when you're investigating a case like this, you can't always please everyone all the time. There's going to be hurt feelings at some point. There's going to be uh, people that disagree with you or, or want to dismiss you, but you can't let that stop you. You have to keep going because that is the only way you get the full picture is to just keep going and keep interviewing people and keep learning the story behind the story. More people involved, like two sets of footprints, maybe? That's right. Um, so speaking of time, how much time do you think you've put? I mean, you said it was, what, five years ago or so that you first heard about the story. If you had to quantify it just off the top of your head, if you had to pick a number, how much time do you think you spent, a, in addition to the podcast, on this particular case? Well, it was early December of 2015 when I first heard about it, so it's been three years. Three years, okay. And... I think the fact that, you know, my children are, are raised and are young adults living their lives and they don't need necessarily my physical time as much as they used to. Um, and because I'm not married, <laughs> and it's probably going to remain that way if I continue to be an investigative reporter, uh, I, have, I have my time to choose how and where I use that time. So I, I just, I'm a seven-day-a-week girl. Whenever someone calls or I hear from someone or a source that says, you know, meet me at such-and-such such diner at midnight, I go. 
And trench coat and all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have anybody to answer to. I don't yeah. have to like sneak out of a bed or have dinner ready at a certain time so that I can go somewhere to to talk to a new source. It's it's really my call, my decision, and uh, my life. So I I chose to commit my life to this case because of the reasons I told you earlier and because I care so much about the families and I felt like there was a certain level of political expedience to this case because it was a death penalty case, because there was a driving force in the district attorney's office where they needed to win this at all costs because their cameras were in the courtroom. They weren't going to lose in front of the cameras. There was a narrative that Dan and Dan alone committed these crimes, and it just didn't sit well with me. It sounds like there's plenty of evidence to prove otherwise, but for one reason or another, political or not, they aren't interested, perhaps. Would you agree? In the end, it's it's all about justice, and we have to have faith in the justice system. If we lose faith in the justice system, we lose everything. So speaking of politics, there's a new DA. After over 20 years, there's a new DA. Do you think Todd Spitzer, in your opinion, is going to maybe relook at this? Well, I've been told he's aware of the podcast and that he has been listening. And so it's my earnest hope that he does reexamine the case of Rachel Buffett, as well as Tim and Noah Buffett. But it's too early to be able to predict where he would potentially go with that. And we'll see. I wanted to address just to put it out there, I listened to the, pre- the obviously the press conference where you were called out. That's pretty powerful stuff. So just to put it out there, plain English, do you believe Daniel Wozniak belongs on death row? I think in the episode where Scott Sanders, Scott Moxley, and Paul Wilson, who was actually a victim of uh, Scott DeCry, he lost his wife of 26 years at the hands of Scott DeCry. And Scott DeCry was another client of Scott Sanders besides Daniel Wozniak. And I point blank said to the defense counsel, have I ever once said that I don't believe Daniel Wozniak belongs on death row? And his answer to that was no. Now, if there was ever a person in this story that I would potentially say that to, it would obviously be the defense counsel to schmooze my way into some kind of a trusting relationship, right? But I don't do that. That's not how I operate. I I believe that Daniel Wozniak is where he belongs. No matter how many times Matt Murphy says it, I have never once claimed otherwise. Well, I haven't heard it on the podcast myself, but as I said, I just wanted to come around to it one more time. I think Daniel Wozniak believes he's where he's supposed to be. Really? Yes, I do. I think... I think part of that conversation we just heard from Daniel Hulkyard yes. was him sort of saying, listen, leave me alone. I took the, I'm taking the responsibility for all of it. If you keep going, other people could end up sitting in a cell next to me and I don't want that. I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be and just leave it be. I but think, that's not Linda. 
So I kind of wanted to get into some more of the not quite as heavy questions. This is, the, and again, this is probably going to be the last one for me. And I've got a whole bunch of questions from the listeners that I'm really excited to get into. Episode seven. That was where you interviewed Rachel Buffett's ex-boyfriend who happened to be her father's age or so. Something along those lines. A lightning rod of an episode, yes. It was. It certainly was. And there were a lot of questions about that episode. Primarily, there was a lot of talk about flirtation during that episode. I heard it. I brought it up to you. We were talking on Facebook. I mentioned it to you. I said, wow, I... That's interesting. How was that in studio? And your response to me was? I got to tell you, I was stunned by the reaction that episode received. Uh, My partner in crime, uh, Mike, who is my audio engineer, and uh, he was in the studio with me. And we left thinking, yeah, he's a character, but... What a wonderful opportunity to open a window into a crazy world that the listeners would have never heard before. And never once did we say to one another, boy, he was really flirting with me or I was really flirting with him. I'm just not someone that even really, I mean, I know this might sound crazy, but I don't even really know how to flirt. (laughs) I don't. I've long passed the years in my life of flirting. And so for me, I'm always focused on extracting the the story out of someone extracting the truth out of them telling listening to them and 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 trying to engage them make them feel comfortable in the situation obviously there was laughter that i was also criticized for and i thought we tried to touch upon that at the end of the episode by saying the levity is is what sometimes makes you feel more at ease when you're sharing the most intimate details of a situation and a time in your life that maybe you're not altogether proud of, but yet you are courageous enough to come forward because if it helps, if it helps the case, if it helps the story, if it helps get to the truth for the victims' families, he did that for them. And and I, I tried to alleviate his concerns about the laughter by saying, you know, I have spent countless hours week after week for years with with Steve Hare, who first and foremost is one of the funniest men I've ever met. And I used to feel guilty about laughing, knowing why we were together, what we were talking about, what we were discussing. And he said, don't you ever feel guilty about laughing because the fact that I can make you laugh and that we can find laughter and all this, it keeps me alive. I remember you saying something about that. Uh, it was for him. It was it was sort of his purpose at this point. And so, you know, I apologize to any listeners that I offended. That certainly was not my intention. And if anything, again, the point was to allow for this person to feel at ease and to feel that he was in a safe place to share a very uncomfortable story. I and I, and I tend to agree. And, and and as I said to you before, I think this is what you do. You're you and you're good at it. Sometimes you just kind of have to go with the flow. And if that means it's if that makes it sound a little bit less than quote unquote professional or less than um, serious, then so be it. But at least you're getting the information. And, and I will tell you, I think 
when I was, I was listening to it, I think the things that maybe stuck out to people was not you so much. I mean, yes, that was laughing, but so when he he talked a lot about, he talked a lot about getting laid and he, and he made a few sexual innuendos. I think maybe that's his sense of humor. Maybe he's like that with a lot of people. Um, and then at the, at the very end, he said, oh, but you're just so charming and funny. And I think that probably is what, and then I think you probably chuckled after that because, oh, thanks, whatever. I think that's probably where people got that impression. I think he has a, a sarcastic tone to his delivery sometimes. And I think that he was just being himself. And I can't judge a person for being themselves. I, I can only expect and certainly hope for them to just come on and tell me the truth. That actually brings up a good question that I have. So do you feel, I don't want to point the finger at anybody in particular. Do you feel like anybody came in here and didn't tell you the truth or maybe stretched the truth or maybe was just here because they went, wow, it's a big podcast with over 2 million listeners and I could be famous if I'm on here. Do you think anybody had motivations other than the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, Linda? I don't think anybody that came on uh, said anything but the truth. I, I've spent countless hours with just about everybody that came on the podcast and also vetted a lot of what they said with other sources. I think that the people that chose in the end not to come on maybe were afraid that they weren't going to be able to tell the truth and they knew that I knew the truth. So that's all I can say about that. As far as the people that were on the podcast, I'm a stickler for the details. I'll drive someone crazy with the details. I mean, I'll 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 call and call again and again to make sure that I get it right or if if their story changed a little bit, why? Why did the story change a little bit? What was the where is where in lies what really happened, you know? I mean, let's go back again and revisit this conversation about what happened 8 years ago, that sort of thing. But I do everything to make sure that I get it right. That, and so you should, and I think that's probably one of the reasons you've been so successful with the podcast and why you have so many regular listeners. Thank you. Myself included, obviously. So let's get to the questions that people asked on Facebook. These are, there, there's, a, there's a few. Um, and the first one, I think, just because Bob's interview was recent, uh, I, I kind of want to start with this. So Blake Harrison asked on Facebook, why did Tim go to Bob's house? And when he went to Bob's house, did Tim know what he was getting himself into when revealing all of this evidence to Bob? When this person says, why did Tim go to Bob's house? It's hard for me to answer because I'm not sure the time frame that these are referring to. I'm assuming I'm going to go with the assumption that this person is asking about when Tim went to Bob's house on Wednesday night talking about the gun. And... He originally went to Bob's house on a Tuesday to share with him the debit card, Sam Harris' debit card, to say he wanted to fill it with gas. and uh, Let me involve you in my crime. Right. And then I think that Lisa Golage, who was his girlfriend at the time, had a lot to do with prompting Tim to do what he had to do to uh, involve Bob in the 
revealing of of the evidence. She knew about the creative evidence. She she was there when it was put into Tim's car the night that they went to Dan's apartment. She knew, she even said to Bob Castillo, please help us so that Tim doesn't have to pay for a crime that Dan committed. Um, So I think Tim going to Bob's the Wednesday night, the same night actually Dan was arrested. And I'm sure he found out Dan was arrested an hour earlier. And I'm sure Lisa then said, he's arrested. The whole house of cards is going to come down. You have to get in front of this. You have to involve Bob, and maybe he can help us get this gun to the police, the proper authorities, to get it out of your hands. And I think that's basically what happened there. As far as what was the second question? Um, did did Tim know what he was getting himself into uh, with the telling Bob about this evidence? And to tag on to that, he also wanted to know, do you think Tim knew that Bob was going to roll on him as soon as I mean, he did. He rolled on him pretty quickly. Do you think Tim knew that Bob was going to roll on him as soon as he had that evidence in hand to make sure that he didn't get in trouble? Well, Bob didn't roll on him. What happened was is the the uh, the police ran the serial numbers on the gun, and it came back to it was Daryl Wozniak's gun. And so Bob only knew what Tim was telling him, which wasn't much. It was one side of things. He was telling him the stories that Dan allegedly told Tim about what had happened with that gun, about how Sam... First, he said that Sam had killed Julie with that gun and was on the run. And then he said at one point that uh, another person was killed by Sam, so that there were two people that were killed by Sam. And uh, so the stories kept changing. And the fact is, is that... Tim knew so much because he was there on the Friday. He was there on the Friday when Dan came back with the first installment of money uh, to give to Chris Williams, who loaned them the $2,000 to stave off the conviction. I mean, Tim had the conversation with Dan during the intermission Saturday night in the nine performance when that young little boy overheard Dan's part of the conversation when he said, why did you have to break the window? When Tim did break a window to get into that apartment, he told him where the crate was to take the crate, the crate that had all of the bloody clothes and the tools that Dan used to dismember Sam's body. He told him where Sam's keys were to go sell the car. So Tim was involved ever since Friday of the murders, probably even earlier, but that's what we know at this point. So as far as how much did Tim know, Tim Tim was looking to extricate himself as much as he could, but he was too involved. So I guess the, I guess maybe to rephrase the question then, did Tim know while he was sharing all this information with Bob, was it in Tim's even consciousness that everything he was saying was really quickly going to be shared with the police? I think Tim doesn't know the truth ever. He doesn't know how to tell the truth. From what I understand from his friends, Tim is just pathological. And so I think that Tim thought he could lie his way out of a situation, but yet somehow he did because he became a crucial witness for the prosecution, for the state. And that is what saved him. That's They needed him so that they could dismiss any potential mental incapacitation defense from Daniel Wozniak. Well, he got what he wanted, I guess, for now. 
So the next question is from Blythe Tierney Deaver on Facebook. The media referred to Rachel Buffett as an actress, in quotes. They weren't exactly specific as to her level or skill of an actress, but she took it as, I'm an actress, I'm such a good actress. If the media had referred to Rachel Buffett as what she truly was, quote, wannabe actress and not simply an actress, do you think that might have caused her to react differently to the media? And do you think that if she thought she wasn't going to be famous from this or infamous or whatever, would she have maybe slipped up a little bit instead of feeling as if everyone bought her teetering, feigned, innocent performance? I think Rachel's always about Rachel. And one of the episodes was with Audrey McVeigh, who was their third wheel up until a week before the murders. And when the murders took place and when the headlines were rampant all across the country, Rachel was certainly a player in in the telling of this case. Audrey had made a point of reaching out to Rachel and saying, "Can you know what can I do for you? I feel bad. Are you okay? Are you hanging in there?" Were all the wedding plans, were you able to take care of the cancellation, all that? And Rachel's response to Audrey was, why are you calling me? Because you just want fame. You just want, you just want fame and you just want to be somehow attached to all this with me. And that was just horrifying to Audrey because that's the last thing she thought about or cared. But that just goes to show you the mentality of Rachel Buffett. So whether they called her an actress or a wannabe actress or, uh, you know, half an actress. <laughs> I think that Rachel was always going to look at this opportunity as her big break. I mean, one of the reasons I was told by a couple of her remaining friends was that she didn't want to take the plea deal that the prosecutor offered her up until a couple weeks before her trial, which was a offer of accept and plead guilty to a misdemeanor. No jail, right? And no jail. And I'll expunge the misdemeanor after a year. Wow. She wouldn't take it because her thought process was, I'm not going to be able to have a book or a movie deal if I plead guilty to anything. But what if you're found guilty in the future? Well, she didn't think about that part. Yeah, I guess not. Again, the narcissism kicks in. Yeah. And you think, I'm going to act my way out of this. And she went for this trial. What what boggles my mind is that she went all the way with this, right, and and decided to play her card with a trial, yet she didn't get up on the witness stand and speak on behalf of herself. She, she, she could have, and you would think that that would be the reason why she would go to trial, but she never did. So Christina Reynolds had a related question. It uh, says, my question would be about Rachel's accessory conviction. Since she was convicted of the accessory charge, is it actually possible to move forward with a murder charge? With the way the law reads, would they have to throw away that conviction? Just curious on the on the legality. And that's actually a question that a lot of people have been asking. What now? Is she done? Can all this evidence that you've accumulated that's probably somewhere in the annals of the Orange County District Attorney, can this all be brought up by Todd Spitzer, whomever? Um, so I guess the question is, what can be done now to, to Rachel now that she's been convicted of just this seemingly small trite? The, the two felonies whatever. of accessory after the fact. The law is simple. You can convict 
someone of an accessory charge, and then you could subsequently charge them with murder or an accomplice if there is a new act, if if new evidence and a new act comes forward that you weren't that wasn't used in your original charge and conviction of the accessory charge, if a new act comes forward, you can be charged with murder even though you've already been convicted of an accessory charge. So Mark Bigginger, I hope I didn't mess up his name, uh, asks, how much involvement do you think Noah had? Given that the theater is on a military base, it's a couple questions. Given that the theater is on a military base, what federal laws are in place, and how do they work in relation to a civilian committing a crime? And, and his last question was, is Tim still in jail on parole violations? So I'll do the last one first. Sure. Tim is out. He was out about a week ago. And as far as the military base being federal grounds, at first the FBI was involved. And they were there on the scene when the, when the, when the body was found. But from what I understand from Mr. Murphy, he said that the FBI is not as effective at prosecuting murders. So the they eventually relented and gave it to the DA's office. That's what I was told by Mr. Murphy. As far as Noah's involvement, I think he certainly knew. He certainly sounded like he knew quite a bit of what was happening when he visited the Spaths uh, two days after Dan had confessed to the murders. He Wasn't went, that an interesting... Uh... Yeah, he went down to the Spaths with Rachel and her two-liter bottle of vodka, and he shared with John Spath how... I mean, John Spath was incredulous. He couldn't believe that Dan, the man that he had known for quite some time because he had been dating his daughter for two years, and they really considered him family. I mean, they went on family vacations together, holidays... And so he he did. He voiced to Noah how he found it shocking that Dan was capable of such horrific murders when he never saw any of those tendencies in him. And Noah said, yeah, no, I can believe it. We used to sit around and plan murders together, how we'd get away with it. And and I, and honestly, I... I I think that the motivation was money because he was being evicted and I was really pressuring him. I was like, what's going to happen, dude? I This is a lease that's in my name and my credit's going to get destroyed. And he told John Spath that Dan told him, as long as I could get $400 a day, he said, we'll be fine. What a miraculous number to pull out of the and air. that's exactly what they were doing. So... I mean, you can just deduce from there. Unfortunately, that's all we'll be doing because they just let everybody else go, it seems like. Well, the reason that the police said they didn't go further, they did originally charge him with accessory after the fact because in his car was underneath the driver's seat was... Noah's a, car. Yeah, Noah's car was an envelope with $400 in it. Um, which was the payment that they had received that day when they went by Wesley's house to pick up the money. And Noah was in that car. So Breaking news on Sleuth. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've talked about the— <laughs> I think the, that is the first time I've spoken mentioned about mentioned the $400 that. in his car. Yeah. So they arrested him for accessory after the fact. But I asked the Costa Mesa police why they didn't pursue charges against Noah, particularly after the Spaths came forward and shared with them what Noah was telling them. And they said, well, he was very helpful— 
in convincing Rachel to take the stress test, the voice stress test. I said, well, what else is he going to say? Of course, he's not going to say don't take it. <laughs> he's going to look guilty if he does that. So I, I, I don't know. I scratched my head on that one, but there was a lot of scratching that went on in this case. So speaking of co-conspirators, allegedly, uh, Arlene Voorhees asks, how was any documentation in correlation with Tim's involvement kept out of any legal discussion or discovery? Why wouldn't Daniel's defense want to bring that to light during the trial, even though Daniel would have adamantly fought against it? Well, that's a question that I have asked the defense counsel directly. And there are certain questions he does answer for me and certain he won't. And that's one he won't because he feels that that uh, is a direct correlation to his strategy. But I can say what I feel, what my opinion is, which has always been my opinion throughout the investigation of this case, is that Daniel doesn't want anybody to point the finger at his brother. He doesn't want his brother to have to go down for any of this. He wants to take it all himself, which is why I think he was upset with Daniel Hulkyard when Daniel Hulkyard came on the show and talked about how he felt Rachel's involvement is really what took them to the dark side and that Rachel was really the the mastermind and all that. Because Rachel and Tim spent about a week together after Dan was incarcerated, after he confessed to the murders. She went to where, the hotel where, where Tim and Lisa Golich were staying, and they did a whole bunch of smoking meth together. And I think that's where they talked about, okay, you go down, I go down. Sort of made thing. their pact. So, whatever. I mean, and that's been something that Tim told me directly. I mean, Tim told me, matter of fact, we spent that week together and we decided if you go down, I go down. I mean, what else is that? I said, what does that mean? He goes, she knows. <laughs> wow. So I don't think Dan wants to roll over on anybody because he just doesn't want to feel guilty of involving them and, and having them end up where he is. In fact, I was told by a source that he very specifically told this blogger that Daniel Halkyard refers to this blogger is a woman that has a, a website. Uh, she was in the theater. She was in the theater community. She was him. in the theater community. And she has a website that says Daniel Wozniak is my best friend or Daniel Wozniak's my friend, something like that. And uh, allegedly Dan Wozniak told her that I'm very worried with this podcast and Linda Sawyer's investigation because I think if she keeps going, Tim will end up in a cell right next to me. So interesting that he's listening right, all of right, the information right. that's come out. Yeah. Like how, what is going on? He's got to be going nuts. If he's got no matter what his um, no matter what he wants to put forth, it's here. Right. I, obviously, he also had a narrative, right? So the DA can have a narrative. Daniel Wozniak can have a narrative. I'm about the truth. Okay, so the, the truth is all that matters to me. And from what I understand, Dan is very upset with the investigation that Sleuth has brought forth. And he actually directed the uh, blogger woman to go speak to Tim while he was incarcerated, while he was in the county jail. Really? Yeah. From what I understand, the blogger shares with Dan 
certain elements of the podcast that she believes would irritate him or upset him. He's actually written to me and told me that he wanted to cooperate with me, but every time he mentions my name to her, it's like this Linda Blair pea-spitting moment. And she, for whatever reason, I guess feels some kind of rivalry. But I don't feel that way towards her. In fact, I have invited her on the program. She declined. But again, I'm all about seeking the truth. I'm never going to sugarcoat the truth. And that's the bottom line. And I don't want to hurt anybody in that process, but that that is what my job is. And so if Daniel hears that Mike's injuries to his father is what exacerbated his death, I mean, he was a diabetic. He was a very sick man. But he wouldn't have died if he didn't have those injuries and they were injuries that weren't tended to right away by medical professionals. So that's the truth. That's what happened. And I have to, I have to share that with the public because, again, that's my job. So let's go back to talking to about Tim. Chris Baker said, given the way that Tim has seemed to always treat Dan, and you've been pretty clear in the podcast that he wasn't, the, he wasn't Dan's biggest fan. Um, why is it then that with us, all this animosity, why do you believe that Dan's continued to cover for him? I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't his best friend. He didn't like him. He said bad things about him to his friends. Given all this, why still, still, why is he covering for him? Marianne Wozniak. His mom. The mom. The mom is all he has left besides the blogger woman. The mom financially puts money in his account every month so that he can have whatever amenities at San Quentin provides. And he doesn't want to disappoint her any more than he already has. I mean, let's face it, this woman's been through hell and back. All three boys have just been an absolute painful nightmare for her. I mean, no matter what happened in that house, no matter what went on and what's the cause of it, we might not ever know, but how much can one woman take? And so I think that because she only has Tim left, I think that he will do anything to make sure that he's free to still be in her life. Whether or not she hears a recording of her eldest son talking to her middle son about when mom is dead, when will mom be dead? Even even knowing that and even hearing that, Tim is still all she has because Mike's been banished and Dan's sitting on death row. So this, that brings me to a good question, follow-up question from Jamie Carroll. Clearly, there was something going on in the Wozniak family. How do all the boys come out as such horrible people? And would you consider that lack of parenting or overparenting? Well, I don't want to judge Marianne Wozniak and her role in all of this. I can only tell the listeners what I've learned from family members, which was that Marianne was a working mom and her mother really was the caregiver in the boys' lives. Whenever there was a problem with one of the boys, with someone else, it was always the other person's fault. It was always, uh, it's not you boys, it's them. Or, or she'd always throw money at the problem. Bottom line is, let them get away without any consequences 
to their behavior. And so that and the combination of the control Marianne Wozniak desperately tried to hold on to with them. I mean, I think that when you're at work, you're a boss, right? And you make decisions and choices and people jump and listen and do what you ask of them. But she'd come home and didn't necessarily have that same control, even though she tried. She tried to dictate with them certain choices that they would make and tried to tell them how they needed to live their lives, tried to control the people that they chose to date. And what happened was in order to escape from that control, they started to lie. They started to lie because they wanted to please her and yet at the same time live their own life. And so the lies just became part of everyday living. It became part of their reality. And and I think lies turn into cheating and stealing and and then this lifestyle of drugs and it's all about the control or lack of control and they said no matter how hard they tried they just couldn't live up to her standards and so what do you do when you feel like you're less than you just say the hell with it and you just kind of go crazy in your life and do whatever makes you happy at the moment or escape it in some way, in any way, because you're constantly aware that you're not able to please this woman that you're supposed to love, right? And that's supposed to be there for you unconditionally. But she was never happy with anything that they did. So when it came time for them to break out and do something on their own. So I I think that if they stayed within her boundaries of what was acceptable Christian behavior. They would try to walk that line, but they're boys and they wanted to go do some wild things too. And, and that was just scorned upon. And, and, uh, and so the lies began and that began, I think the whole, the whole unfortunate life of crime. Wow. Says a lot. Says a lot. So Becca Ann Mendoza asks, will the Hare and Kibuishi families file a civil case against Rachel or Tim for their involvement? I think that's a really good question because obviously more of the details that haven't been answered, like the bloody shoes, the sneakers that they pulled out of Tim's closet with grass on them, the footprints in the attic, the dusted prints in Sam's car that were never validated, and the results were never found out. I think all those things would come to light in a civil case. I don't know if the families can withstand going through a civil case. They've been through a lot, and this has been an arduous process. That's been many years that they've had to go to court. And uh, so whether or not they have the fortitude to go through it again, I don't know. But I think they'd get a lot of answers if they did. I think you're probably right. So Leslie Ashley... Had a few questions. The first question is, if Rachel and Dan were so broke, how were they paying for their wedding? Even the modest wedding, and I can tell you from experience because I've worked in weddings, even the modest weddings are at least a few thousand dollars. And were his parents invited to the wedding? So to answer the question about payment, I had met Rachel's parents at one of the pretrial hearings, one of Rachel's pretrial hearings, they sat in front of me and we talked at length. And one of the things that Mr. Buffett wanted me to 
be clear about was that he was paying for the wedding, that they had gone to a local restaurant and they had worked out some kind of arrangement where they were able to get some kind of a discount for the food, the buffet, whatever. So it was really just the honeymoon that Dan was supposed to be responsible for. And uh, yeah, so he was he he was paying for that. As far as Dan's parents being invited, uh, I think that they were invited, but he had come up with some kind of a, a phony email that he had sent to them because in the end, I don't think he really wanted them to come. So he sent an email saying, you know, get back to us if you want to come or not. And then they answered but they answered an email that never went to anybody. So the Buffets thought that they just didn't want to come because they didn't respect Rachel. So again, it was just part of all of the manipulations of, of Dan and all, all of the lies and deceit. Was Mike Wozniak ever charged for the attack on his dad? No. Not at all? Not at all. Ever reported to the police? No, because that's what Daniel Holocaust mentioned. I think that Daniel Wozniak was upset with I did say that Marion Buffett refused to allow Daryl to go to the emergency room because Dan Wozniak, her son's trial, was in the process of happening. So she was worried, another Wozniak headline, because with the injuries that Daryl had, there was no question that the authorities would have been called by the ER doctors. And she knew that. So he didn't have the medical attention he needed at the time he needed it. That was told to me not only by Tim, but by Kathleen Comfort as well. And as I told you, Bob Castilla in episode 20 says, I, I came there the night he was beaten up and it was horrific. I mean, there were two black eyes, bruises all over his legs, blood everywhere. It was just awful. That's, now this is just, this is as follow-up for me. That's murder. That's technically maybe second degree, third, still murder and there's no statute on that. Do you think that could come back after the information you perhaps from Bob's testimony or from Bob's interview, the information you've uncovered, do you think that could come back to Mike? I don't know if the DA or the authorities want to look at anybody at this case uh, other than Dan Wozniak. I, I hope they look at everybody. I hope that they re-examine Rachel and Tim and Noah and Mike. I, I think I think they all deserve the scrutiny of a proper vetting of new charges on these people that were involved in these crimes. So Leslie Ashley also asked, did Scott Sanders ever have a clue or hint to the informant scandal prior to the Wozniak and DeCry case? Or was this the one thing that really brought the whole thing to bear? I think the combination of Scott Sanders having Daniel Wozniak as a client, as well as Scott DeCry as a client, he was able to sort of cross-reference both of his files and both of his findings. And, 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 and through that process, he found out about these informants and what was going on. And that sort of blew it all up from there. But it was because he had that unique perspective of having both of these clients at pretty much the same time. Gene Hopkins asks, what level of contact does Dan's mom and Tim Wozniak maintain with Dan at San Quentin? 
Tim never sees Dan, never talks to him, never sees him. Didn't see him when he was in county jail. Went to see him once with his mother when Daryl died, the father. Um, but Marianne, she sees him quite often. She goes up for holidays, understanding. My understanding is that Marianne uh, is pursuing the purchase of a condo up there. I know that Tim told me that. He, his eyes got a little watery when he told me that because I said to him, well, what about you? You're still here. And he said, that doesn't matter to my mom. So. Wow. Yeah. So there is definitely a rivalry there. There's no doubt about it. Whether or not Marianne can appreciate it or recognize it, I don't know. But it seems as if her focus is still on Danny. Not Tim, which may be the reason, well, according to Bob, is the reason that Tim held so much hostility towards Dan. And I think that's correct. And I think that, uh, I think also she's she's an elderly woman. She was an older mom. And how many times can you put your son in rehab? I mean, it's been countless, half a dozen times, in and out, in and out. How much money can you spend? And she doesn't like spending money. She has money, but she's very frugal. So she is one that would rather not spend money. I mean, in the case of Daniel Wozniak's defense, I mean, he was represented by a public defender, a damn good public defender. I mean, honestly, he was very fortunate in the lawyer that he had. But yeah, why not? Why? She's got the money. This is her baby. Yeah, that was why one, not one spend question all that money? I thought, like, with all that money, you'd think, top notch. I mean, I come from New York City, so you pay for what you get as far as defense counsel and as far as justice. And when I first came into this courtroom, I actually had a friend with me at the time. And that friend turned to me. And this was when Matt Murphy was sitting at the, uh, you know, the, the prosecution table and and Scott Sanders was at the defense table with Wozniak sitting next to him. And Scott got up for some motion and started talking. And my friend turned to me and said, who's paying for him? And I turned back. I said, you are. <laughs> and and that's... Because he's a public defender. he's a public defender. But he didn't seem like it. But I guess in Orange County, the public defender's office, the, the, the community pays a decent amount of money for top-notch lawyers. And so for people that are indigent or people that don't have the means, they, they, have, they have good counsel that they have options for their representation. So speaking of Wozniak's representation, Cheryl Scaccio asked, what was Wozniak's defense? He obviously freely admitted everything and brought the police to the body. So why did he plead not guilty? Was he given the chance to plead guilty and avoid the death penalty? They, he was not given the chance. It was asked and it was turned down by the public. The public defender asked for that. And the DA said no. And uh, the fact that they went to trial was because he was trying to fight the death penalty. So L. Bush wants to know at what point in the story did Rachel and Tim stop visiting, rioting, expressing support for Dan? Well, as I said, Tim really never did mm -hmm. support Dan. And Rachel stopped within a month of his incarceration. She 
From what he told Steve Hare, Steve Hare had visited Dan several times while he was in county jail waiting for his trial. And he told Steve Hare that Rachel came one day about a month into his time there and uh, walked up to the glass-plated window and just put her two hands up in the air with and flipped him two birds and walked out and he never saw her again. And he has no idea why. Wow. Well, the next question I was going to ask you is, does he know how quickly she moved on? But I guess that sort of explains it. Well, I think after listening to this podcast, he knows how quickly she moved on. And also in the trial, he heard the statements about her, of what she said to police the morning after he was arrested for accessory after the fact. Remember, he was arrested Wednesday night from his bachelor party. And then that early the next morning, three o'clock in the morning, she was taken from uh, from Camden Martinique to uh, the Costa Mesa police station and it's there that she said that you know he wasn't the greatest lover he didn't have a lot going on downstairs and she wasn't crazy over the top about him but that was okay so all these things were said in court in open court in fact uh, I can recall Steve Hare getting up in the courtroom and sort of turning around to all of us and had this like Cheshire cat smile on his face because they were talking about the size of Dan's penis, and that made him happy. So, but uh, yeah, I think I think Dan had a pretty good idea after that incident with fl- her flipping him the birds that that she was done with him. So, speaking of Steve Hare, a question I actually had that I was going to ask earlier: it, He's upset. You you've talked a bit about him being upset with you, and I just wanted to see if you'd mind going telling. That's why and what your opinion is, and do you think there's any possibility to reconcile in the future? I've tried. Uh, it's definitely uh, painful. I care very deeply about theirs, and I want what's best for them. And I reminded them that I made a promise to their son, and I have continued to keep that promise. And part of that is the ability to reveal the truth about this case. And the reason his son was a target was because of his background, because Sam shared his background with them. And when I invite guests on my show and I interview them, just like you're interviewing me right now, I don't ever intend to censor anybody or to delete or edit out answers that they give me because that's not what a journalist does. A journalist exposes the truth. A journalist digs deep till they get to the truth. And part of that is allowing guests to come on and tell their story and tell what they know. And so when I asked Scott Sanders the question about what What did he perceive as the most egregious ruling that Judge Connolly had imposed during the case? And he said the fact that he wouldn't allow Sam's past in as a killer. He used the word killer. I think he probably regrets that word, but that's the word he used. And that's what he said. And that was his sentiment because he felt the prosecutor opened up that door by 
sharing with jurors how Sam was a decorated veteran and presenting this image of Sam as as this person that should be honored and admired, which his time in the service should be honored and admired, right? But because legally the prosecutor opened up that information, he also opened up the door to the defense counsel saying, okay, but we should know then the whole story of Sam Hare, which included this past where Sam was charged with murder. So that's, in essence, the core of why the Hares were upset with me. And I find it very disturbing that the prosecutor in this case took advantage of that situation by saying that I am somehow denigrating Sam's past, that I am denigrating Sam's memory when there's over 35 hours of content in Sleuth and four minutes of it was dedicated to that conversation. And so the thrust of my work and what I've done here has all been in memory of Sam and Julie, so that they can rest in peace knowing that everyone involved in their murders has faced some consequences. And that's always been my intent, and that's what I've always hoped would be the final impression of my work. Wow. So the last question, I think this is pertinent, this is Leslie Ashley again. A lot of people from Dan's past have said some very good things about him, about who he was, uh, their impressions, and so on. What do they or you think is really wrong with him? Is he just a psychopath that's able to charm and manipulate people? There's all kinds of reputable people defending his character. What do you think, to kind of wrap this up, what do you think is really the issue? Is he just re- thinks he's a really good actor? Do you think he was going to get away with it? Or do you think there's really perhaps something deeply wrong that would make him do what he did? Well, there's clearly something deeply wrong with him. And no, he's not a very good actor. I think the reputable people that the listeners are referring to are people that have since realized they didn't really know Dan Wozniak at all. I mean, you heard Daniel Hulkyard today say, Myself and my family, we're, we're pulling away here. We're, we're done. I don't know who this person is. And maybe they never knew who this person is. In the fact, the Spaths said the same thing by the end of their episode. Uh, we're not condoning anything he did. Uh, we, we think that we were duped by Dan and, and we never really knew him. So I think that uh, the reputable people have far left Dan's side. And I think Dan, from a very early age, learned how to live two different lives. And and the dark one took over. It's unfortunate because now there's two less people walking around because of him. And maybe a few more people that have yet to be prosecuted. You got it. Well, this has definitely been illuminating. I'm glad to hear you say so. I um, definitely appreciate the opportunity and 
you didn't hold anything back. I'm really happy for all the questions and thankful that everybody stepped up and and they were really good questions. There were a lot. And again, thank you to everybody on Facebook and everybody that asked questions because there was a lot of good stuff there. I mean, I had a few that I'd been asking you, but some of the stuff they asked, I went, wow, yeah, that's, I didn't think about that. So I'm glad they were there. And I'm really uh, pleased with the ability to be able to do this for the listeners because the listeners in the end are so important to me because they inspire me and they, they keep me motivated to stay on course, to stay on track. And and I'm so grateful for each and every one of them. So I hope that I have uh, been able to uh, address all of their questions. Uh, and I hope that they feel that they now know more than they did before. And there you go. Season one of Sleuth. Thank you. Thank you. Before I say goodbye to all of my listeners at the conclusion of season one of Sleuth, I first need to explain the condition of my voice. We have been recording the finale episode now for the past two days. And at the end of yesterday's session, I'm sure you could hear my voice was starting to go. And this morning, I pretty much lost it. I suppose it's pretty ironic that after over 300 interviews and this relentless, exhaustive investigative journey I've been on for three years, I was bound to lose my voice on the very last day. So bear with me, because I am going to share with you, scratchy voice and all, what I know after spending time with my source, Deep Throat. At the beginning of this episode, I told you that I had been trying for weeks to persuade Deep Throat to come forward. I had lunches and dinners and phone calls and texts, and while she did tell me everything she knew, she was trepidatious about coming forward. I tried to explain to her that It would be helpful not only for the victim's families, but we could go to the police, we could go to the new DA and share with them everything that she knew. But she still felt that the consequences of her coming forward were were too severe, too grave. And so I promised her, while I was going to tell the details of what she shared with me to my listeners, I would still maintain her anonymity and not reveal her identity unless I had her blessing. So I've decided to call Deep Throat on air right now for my final attempt to see if she will in fact come forward on her own and share all she knows about her conversation with Rachel Buffett and Rachel Buffett's role in these murders. has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system is not available at the tone please record your message when you have finished recording you may hang up or press one for more options 
Hi, this is Linda Sawyer from Sleuth. I wanted to give you one last opportunity to share with the listeners everything that you shared with me regarding your conversations with Rachel and her confession to her role in the murders of Sam and Julie Kibuishi. I guess no matter what was said, you know that you can rely on me to maintain the anonymity of your identity. I had only wished that somehow you had found the courage to come forward because it would mean so much to so many people, most importantly for the memory and for the souls of Sam and Julie. Have a good day. I tried. So there you have it. My last attempt at getting deep throat to come forward. So let me share with you everything that I know based on my conversations with Deep Throat. It starts with a gentleman by the name of Billy Elliot. And Billy Elliot was Rachel Buffett's boyfriend when they met. At medieval times, they started dating and they had maintained a relationship from medieval times all the way to Knott's Berry Farm, which is where Billy now works, and Rachel knew many of the people that worked there as well in the cast. Billy would often have parties at his house, cast parties, and it was there that Deep Throat first met Rachel Buffett, and they developed rapport, and Rachel felt comfortable, I suppose, because she was actually one of the only women at these parties. And so she would pull her into a room privately and and sort of open up about the role she played in the murders of Sam Hare and Julie Kibuishi. And she basically, over time, this was several encounters, she confessed that she knew everything and she was in on the plan from the beginning. But she, the one thing that she said to Deep Throat that was really disturbing, well, there were many things that were disturbing, but the one thing that really uh, struck Deep Throat as so odd was that she really didn't think there was anything wrong with her not coming forward. Rachel just didn't understand why it was a bad thing that she didn't tell anybody about the plan. I mean, honestly, could you believe this? I just... It just escapes any logical, reasonable thinking. But that's what she told her. And she said the brothers, Tim, Tim Wozniak, and Noah Buffett, they all knew too. They were all involved in the planning. And Deep Throat went a step further and told me details that Rachel told her about the crime scene specific details about the crime scene that in Deep Throat's mind only someone that was there for the murders could have known. I specifically asked her, do you think Rachel was there for Julie's murder? And she said yes, based on what Rachel told me. And and think back about Sleuth's interview with Ashley Mathis. When Ashley Mathis told us the story about Rachel barging into their apartment 
and just heading right for the deck because the deck was right opposite Sam Hare's apartment. And she clearly wanted to see into Sam's apartment and to see who was there or what you could see from that deck for fear that maybe Ashley or Haley, her roommate, could have seen Rachel there. I mean, that when I told the defense counsel that, he, he said, I wish I knew that story because that to me is quite damning. There's no other reason why Rachel would have done that a day after Dan confessed to the murders. She wouldn't have done that for Dan's sake. She would have done that for her sake. We know at this point that Rachel pretty much makes decisions and choices based on whatever it is that works well for her. So it all fits, doesn't it? Deep Throat also told me there was another person that Rachel also confessed this story to in the details. So there are two people, I guess, that Rachel decided it was time to tell the truth. But the most frightening element to what I learned from my conversations with Deep Throat is that Rachel Buffett, Billy Elliot, and a host of other actors who met at Knott's Berry Farms decided to venture out on their own to produce a cheap, back-galley, low-budget film starring Rachel Buffett with the subject of the murders of Sam Hare and Julie Kibuishi. How they portrayed her role in all this remains to be seen because the movie is top secret and supposedly Billy Elliot only has a copy to this movie. The making of this movie and the subject matter that's portrayed shows how demented this woman's mind is that she would choose this subject matter for a movie that she starred in. After learning about this movie depiction, this sick, demented movie that was shot about Sam and Julie's murders, I immediately reached out to Lieutenant Ed Everett at the Costa Mesa Police Department and asked him if we could meet regarding new information that I learned. His response was that he couldn't meet with me because the case of Sam Hare and Julie Kabishi is essentially closed, but that if I had any additional information or evidence that I should reach out to the Costa Mesa detective now in charge, which is Sergeant Scott Stafford, which I plan to do at the conclusion of this episode. And with that, folks, I hope that you have been able to appreciate all the work that myself and my team at Sleuth has put into this journey that started three years ago and is ending today. And I feel so honored that each and every one of you took the time out of your lives to spend time listening to Sleuth, recognizing and acknowledging the work and sharing it with your friends and associates. And truly from every chamber of my heart, I thank each and every one of you because without you, 
we might not see justice. And it's because of the power of the people and the amalgamation of all of your voices that can help pressure authorities and the justice system in Orange County to do the right thing that maybe for once we might see complete justice for Sam and Julie. Thank you. God bless and have a wonderful new year. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend and be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.